Finally, we get to the end of Genesis after five and a half months. This morning, we're going to be looking at the final chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verses 12 through 21. We're going to continue looking at the character that we were introduced to last week, Joseph. And just to do a quick recap, that in the midst of the brokenness of this world, in the midst of God bringing redemption to the world in spite of our first parents' fall and bringing death and sin into the world, God in Genesis chapter 12 comes to a man by the name of Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want to start a new family. I want to start a new people. And it's going to be through you, Abraham, through your seed, that all of the nations will be blessed, that the message of salvation and the message of the kingdom of God will be advanced to all the nations of the world, and I'm going to do it through you. And so Abraham has a son by the name of Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to two sons, Jacob and Esau. And it would be through a series of scandalous events that Jacob receives the birthright and receives the blessing as the son of promise. And it would be through Jacob that would continue the messianic seed. And then, as we were introduced to him last week in Genesis chapter 37, the favored son of Jacob is Joseph. And Joseph is beloved by Jacob, his father, but in a, out of jealousy and envy, what do his other brothers do? They capture him and they leave him for dead in the pit and they, but, but they come to their senses and realize that we we don't want blood to be on our hands. So they take him out of the pit and they sell him into slavery. And as we looked at last week, That in Genesis chapter 37, God is nowhere to be found, or apparently nowhere to be found. God's name isn't even mentioned in Genesis 37, leaving us to wonder, where is God in the pit? But then as we saw last week, that even through all of the tragedy of everything that happened in Joseph's life, that it would actually be through him being in the pit that God would actually save Joseph from self-righteousness and ultimately save their brothers from envy and destruction. And that through all of the tragedy of Joseph's life and the tragedy of his brother's life, that God was actually saving the nation Israel from utter destruction. That God saves Joseph from the pit of self-righteousness And he saves the brothers from jealousy and killing each other. And through it, God is still at work. A family is saved. A nation is saved. And God's plan to redeem the world is secure. Last week, we looked of the reality that God's apparent silence does not mean his absence. He's always at work, even in the pit. Today we look at Genesis chapter 50, verses 12 through 21. Next week we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 1. To bring you up to speed, this is what has happened between Genesis 37 and chapter 50. Joseph is sold into slavery. He sold to a man by the name of Potiphar, who was an administrative deputy to the Pharaoh. 
Potiphar's wife begins to seduce Joseph, and Potiphar's wife accuses him of assaulting her. Joseph's put into prison, but in his imprisonment, he begins to interpret all of these dreams. So Joseph actually becomes very popular with the ruling class in Egypt. Through his interpretation of the dreams, he's eventually released into freedom. And he's used by God to enter into a very prominent position. He becomes the deputy pharaoh, and he begins to interpret dreams on behalf of the pharaoh. And in this rise to prominence, he's eventually reunited with his brothers. And his brothers fall at his feet, and they beg for forgiveness, and they beg for food, and they beg for mercy, thinking that Joseph would strike them dead and extend no mercy to them. Joseph does the unthinkable. He extends to his brother's mercy. He doesn't seek revenge, but he extends mercy. Even though he had the power to enact vengeance upon his brothers, instead, he actually does the more powerful thing, and he extends mercy to them. And through it, as I said, he saves the nation and is used by God to fulfill his great mission of advancing the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Genesis chapter 50, verses 12 through 21. This is the word of God. Thus, his sons, meaning the sons of Jacob, did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him, Jacob, Jacob is now dead, to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father Joseph, after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil they did to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and they bowed down before him. Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to him, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, he meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord... It stands forever. Amen. As a pastor, the majority of the objections, not all of the objections I get concerning Christianity, are not theological. The majority of the objections I get concerning Christianity are not based on the historicity of Christianity or the reliability of the scriptures. 
Without a doubt, the majority of objections I get to Christianity as a pastor's are simply personal. And they tend to go like this. If, if God is loving, how could this happen to me? If, if, as I said even last week, if God is in control, how could there be all of the brokenness and the chaos and the sin in the world? If, if God is for me, how come when I look at the series of my life, it sure seems like he's against me? And the tragedy of tragedies is that looking at the surface of one's life, people turn away and they reject God. Now one could make a case understanding the story and the life of Joseph. One could make the case that Joseph from an earthly standard was more than justified to turn away and reject God. Joseph was, from an earthly perspective, from a human view, was more than justified to say, I'm just kind of done with this God thing. But the miracle of miracles and the remarkable story of Joseph's life and ultimately the remarkable story of the end of Genesis is that is far from the conclusion of Joseph's life and far from the conclusion of this epic story of Genesis. In fact, we see exactly the opposite. We do not see a man rooted and grounded in bitterness. We do not see a man who is turning his back on God, but we see a man at the end of Genesis 50 that is so different than the Joseph that we saw in Genesis 37. We see a man who is in encountered God and is utterly transformed. Instead of rejecting and running away from God, we see a Joseph who utterly embraces God and is transformed by him and learns what it means to live in light of the sovereignty of God. Let's look at this together this morning. As I said in verse six, that Joseph, that Jacob here is dead, and that in verse 16, we are told that as they were preparing to bury their father Jacob, they send this message to Joseph. And it, it goes something like this in verse 16. Dad is dead. He said, be nice to us. And so they're trying to convince Joseph, not knowing what Joseph, would, how he would respond now that our dad is dead. They are just hoping to God that, that, that Joseph will not enact vengeance, that he will not enact justice upon him. They don't know what kind of Joseph they're going to face. Is this, this just a Joseph that is going to absolutely unleash his wrath upon us? What in the world could Joseph do to us in light of everything that we've done to him? But we're told in verse 17 of this passage that Joseph, even though he had already forgiven his brothers, that he weeps because he realizes in that moment that they still have not gotten the message of forgiveness. They still have not received the message of transforming grace in their lives just as Joseph had received it in his life. But what do we see here following that? I want to simply look at this morning briefly verses 19, 20, and 21 to show us how Joseph responds to his brothers, which was utterly counterintuitive 
to how most of the world or anybody maybe in this room by nature would naturally respond in light of what the brothers had done to him. Let's look at a life utterly transformed by the grace and the sovereignty of God. The first thing that we see in the transformed life of Joseph is we, underst- we see that Joseph understands his limits in verse 19. In verse 19, we see a life that has been utterly transformed because he understands his limitations. What do I mean by that? How does Joseph respond to his brothers falling at his feet begging for mercy? Joseph says this, and it is so foundational foundational to understanding what it means to live a life embracing God and all the things that happen in our life. Joseph responds and says, don't fear for I am I in the place of God. That is so foundational, the way that Joseph responds. What Joseph is saying there is this, there's one seat in heaven and it's reserved for God, not me. You see, what Joseph is communicating to his brothers is I have certain limitations on my life that even if I wanted to enact vengeance upon you, that is not my place. There have been limits placed on my life and there have been limits placed on your life as well and it is not to play God. And what Joseph is saying there is that I have been so transformed by God and I so rest in the sovereignty of God, I now know my place versus God's place. And God's chair is reserved for one. Now there's a lot of ways in which we forget our limitations every single day and we try to play God. Maybe we try to play God and sit in his chair by being our own moral authority and saying, no, I will not allow some outside absolute source to dictate to me that which is right and that which is wrong. I will dictate for my own life that which is right and what, what that which is wrong. Maybe we see it in even more practical sense in which we become a very controlling person in our life and we can try to control people and circumstances and manipulate things and manipulate situations in trying to play God. Or maybe it's anxiety and you live a life of constant worry and anxiety and even in those moments you are playing God and forgetting your limitations that you don't control the world and everyone in it. But here the way we see Joseph understanding his limitations and not playing the role of God is he refuses to hold a grudge. He refuses to be bitter. He refuses to wallow in his bitterness and keep a grudge, even though from an earthly perspective, he had every reason to be justified in holding a grudge against his brother. He says, of course, I'm not God. Only God can do that. Who am I to hold a grudge against you? Who am I to enact vengeance upon you? Who am I to wallow in my bitterness against you and to enact vengeance? You see, what Joseph is ultimately saying in that comment, am I in the place of God? And it's actually a very scary question he is reciting because what he is communicating is this, that if I were to hold a grudge, I would be sitting in the chair of God. And so what I want you to think about this morning is in your life, every time you hold a grudge, 
And every time you allow yourself to be justified in your mind, that yes, I am justified in my bitterness, I am justified in my grudge against my brother or my sister, I am justified in how I feel because they have wronged me, what Joseph is communicating this morning is that you are taking the place of God and you are sitting in his chair. In Romans chapter 12, Paul communicates to us that the only one who has the right to enact vengeance is God. Paul declares that God alone can make the announcement that vengeance is mine. And so when God says vengeance is mine alone, that I will repay evil, what God is saying to you and to me is get out of my chair. And so if you are holding a grudge against a brother or a sister, if you are holding a grudge against a friend, if you are holding a grudge against anybody in your life, let me be very clear. God is screaming this morning, get out of my chair because you do not have the right to hold a grudge against that person. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so may the words of Joseph be our words this morning in understanding who we are and understanding who God is and understanding our limits and understanding God's capacity. You know, what's ironic to me is that the more we hold a grudge and the longer we wallow and we stay in our state of bitterness, you know what's amazing? We become so cold-hearted and we become so evil and we become, we, we become so hard in our heart and on our mind, we actually become the evil that was done against us. Isn't that amazing? So the longer you stay bitter, the longer you hold a grudge, the longer you remain hold hard-hearted, it does something to you in such a way that you become the evil that was done against you. As Tim Keller said, what the irony of bitterness and holding a grudge is this, that the more you try to play God and hold a grudge, the more evil you become. But the more you don't try to play God and you refuse to take the place of God, the more godly you become. Isn't that amazing how it works? It's the first step for Joseph and it's the first step for you of living a life, trusting and resting in the sovereignty of God, understanding our limits. There is one chair and it's reserved alone for God. The second thing we see in this passage is in verse 20. The mark of a transformed life was the fact and the reality that Joseph had a God-centered view. What does Joseph say after explaining that I'm not going to take the place of God, that is his chair and his chair alone. Joseph says, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, there are two choices in life. Joseph had two choices and you have two choices. When you are wronged, when you are going through tragedy, when you are going through a circumstance or season in life where everything seems turned upside down, Joseph had two choices and you have two choices. You can either look at it from the bottom or you can look at it from the top. What do I mean by that? You can either look at it from a human earthly perspective or you can look at it from God's perspective from the top. And what Joseph does here in verse 20, he chooses to look at it from a God-centered view. He chooses to look at it from the top. 
You see, the world says this, the human perspective from the bottom in looking at tragedy and looking at crisis and looking when people have wronged you, this is what the world says. Listen to me. My life is going well and my life is going good, therefore God must be good. My life is going bad and tragedy is striking my life, therefore God must be bad. Things are going good, God's rewarding me. Things are going bad, God is punishing me. You see, that was ease, could have easily been the view of Joseph. You wronged me, now I'm going to wrong you. But Joseph doesn't take that view. He doesn't take the view from the bottom, but he takes the view from the top. It is a God-centered view, and it's the only way in which you and I can go and exist and move through the ups and downs of life, from the mountaintop experiences of life and those experiences where we are in the pit like Joseph. And the God-centered view and God's perspective is this. Life is hard, true, and life is full of pain, and life is full of all kinds of wrongs and evil, but still, through it all, God is good. Do you see the balance there? So important. You see, what a lot of people do, even inside the church, is they will tend to either dismiss evil, blow it off, try to ignore it, or even become numb to it. And all of us are guilty at some level, right? The person that asked you, maybe even today, coming in, how are you doing? And we go, oh, things are great. And inside you are ready to fall apart. You are coming apart inside. And what you're doing in that moment is you're dismissing evil. You're dismissing the wrong things in life that have happened to you. You're dismissing tragedy. But then on the other hand, the other extreme is people that always just stay in their bitterness. They always just stay, right? It's the person that it constantly has a dark cloud over them, right? It's, it's the type of person, it's my favorite type of person, yeah, right? It's the person that says, um, oh, tragedy hasn't struck you yet? Oh, just you wait, right? You haven't had a bad day? Oh, it's coming, right? That person that is just the constant black cloud around them. Understand that Joseph doesn't do either one. He doesn't dismiss evil. He calls evil for what it is, but he doesn't live there. He says, yes, it's evil, and I've been wronged, and it hurts, and I haven't forgotten, brothers, but I won't stay there, and I won't live there. I still know through it all, God meant it for good. Only Christianity gives you that biblical balance. Only Christianity gives you that biblical worldview. That it doesn't dismiss evil, it calls it for what it is. Brothers, you hurt me, and you wronged me, and you meant it for evil, and I have not forgotten. It calls it for what it is. It doesn't dismiss it. It doesn't gloss over it. It doesn't ignore it. But it doesn't stay there. It says, in light of you hurting me, and it still hurts, I know. I live with the confident hope. I live with the confident hope that God meant it for good. Only the message of Christianity gives us that freedom and gives us that perspective to have that biblical balance and having a God-centered, gospel-centered view of what happens in our life. The reason, brothers, I can forgive you is because you tried to sink me, but God was for me. So therefore, the lower you try to bury me in God, the higher I will rise. Only those that have encountered 
God and his sovereign grace can make that declaration. Do you know what kind of freedom this provides you? Do you know? There's a hymn that we sing every Easter Sunday. Christ the Lord is risen today. And in verse four, I have never thought about this before until I was studying for this sermon. In verse four of Christ the Lord is risen today, one of the most peculiar lyrics is recorded. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. What the author of that hymn is saying, and this is what makes it so peculiar, is the author is getting us to sing on Easter Sunday, the cross, the grave, they belong to me. What is that communicating? It's saying in Christ, cross, grave, you no longer own me. I own you. Mine. Ours the cross. Ours the grave. So that although this life is full of graves and crosses, although this world and this life is full of all kinds of defeat, in Christ the Christian alone can sing, you're mine cross, you're mine grave, you can't sink me, you can try to destroy me, but I have Jesus Christ who has already won the battle for me. Do you know what kind of freedom that gives you? Living this life. Two choices. You can either look at it from the bottom or look at it from the top. Then lastly, what marked this amazing transformed life of Joseph? Last and finally, Joseph embraces unconditional love. In verse 21, we see the most remarkable of transformations. Joseph finally says in verse 21, so do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. What? What? The brothers who tried to sink him, the brothers that tried to destroy him, the brothers that left him for dead in the pit and sold him to slavery, not only does Joseph forgive him, that would have been enough, right? For Joseph to say, I forgive you, we'll go our own separate ways, we won't bring it up again at the family dinner table, but you go your way, I'll go my way, and we'll just let bygones be bygones. Joseph says, not only will I forgive you, I'll provide for you. Who does that? What? A life that's been transformed and has encountered the unconditional love and grace of God. You see, Joseph and Joseph alone understands in this story amongst all of the other characters. He understands. Remember chapter 37, what he was? He was a spoiled little brat. He used to go to his dad and his brothers and say, hey, one day you're going to work for me. One day you're going to worship me. One day you're going to bow down at my feet. Joseph was a spoiled little brat who was brought to his knees. And instead of receiving justice and wrath from God, God extends him grace and mercy. And so therefore, Joseph goes, the only way that I can extend forgiveness and love and grace and mercy and provision for those that have wronged me, my enemies, it's one thing to provide for those that have provided for you. It's one thing to provide for those who have loved you and honored you in your entire life. It's another thing to love and provide for your enemies. But Joseph realized I was once an enemy of God. 
It's a spoiled, little, selfish, self-righteous brat. And God rescued me. How could I not extend the same in return? You see, Joseph understood that God provided for him even though he was undeserving, even though he did not deserve the unmerited favor of God, God provided it for him. Now you might sit here this morning and say, but Joseph's like a hero. I mean, Joseph's this hero of the Bible, right? And that that we're still talking about thousands of years later. I I can't do that. How do I do that? I mean, it's it's one thing for Joseph to be the, to to emulate this this epic character in the Bible that that forgives his enemies, and we all leave saying, "Oh wow, I wish I could be like like Joseph somehow, sometime, someday in my life." But I can never measure up to that. And you're right. You can actually do better. You see, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, see over there? There's a man by the name of John the Baptist coming, and he's the greatest. Jesus says he's greater than Abraham, and he's, he's greater than Isaac, and he's got greater than Jacob. And, and that guy, John the Baptist over there, he's greater than all the patriarchs, Joseph included. But then he says this, but now... Anybody who enters the kingdom of God will actually be greater than John the Baptist. What? I thought you just said John the Baptist was greater than all the other patriarchs in the Old Testament. And now you're telling me whoever enters the kingdom now will even be greater than John the Baptist? Yes. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying Joseph and Jacob and and Isaac and Abraham and John the Baptist included, they responded to God and they only had the gospel in part. But you, you have the gospel in full. You see, they only had a, had a sneak peek of what was coming. They looked forward by faith to what was coming in the messianic seed. And they trusted and believed, and they were great. But you have the full picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore you, my friends, will be even greater than all those that went before you. You see... You have a picture of Jesus Christ who is greater than Joseph. One who actually was in the place of God. One who actually sat in the seat of God but said, I refuse to sit in it any longer and I will come down in the form of a bondservant and I will be destroyed so that you can live forever. You see, on the one hand, Joseph was was rescued from evil, but Jesus actually willingly took on our evil, and the Bible says that he actually became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You see, the only way you and I can cure our bitterness and love our enemies is to look to the one this morning who drank from the cup of bitterness, that even Jesus Christ himself drank from the cup of bitterness and took on our bitterness and took on our evil and took on all of the ways that we have been wronged in this life so that you could have the freedom to live this transformed life, a greater peace and a greater hope. You see, you can't find this hope anywhere else. 
It is only in the message of Christianity and only in the message of the good news of Jesus Christ where you can have the hope, where you can leave here this morning saying, they meant it for evil, but in Christ God meant it for good. It's only the picture of the cross, the most evil symbol in human history in which the greatest thing came about. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that we can look at and say they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Do you have this hope this morning? Do you have this type of confidence? Do you have this type of assurance to live the life like Joseph lived looking to the one who makes all wrongs right? If you don't, you can have it today through a relationship with Jesus Christ. S.M. Lockridge was one of the greatest African-American preachers in American history. S.M. Lockridge was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego from 1953 to 1993. And he delivered back in the 1970s probably one of the greatest Easter meditations that the world has ever heard. It was pretty short and it was pretty sweet. And he used basically two lines throughout the entire sermon. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And this is what he said. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep and Judas is betraying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't know, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know. Sunday's a coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. The ro- they robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know. Friday's, Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, his spirits burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hand to the cross and they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross and he's feeling forsaken by his father left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. Soldier stands guard. And a rock is rolled in place. And then he stood up. And he said, but they think that this is the end. But what they don't know, it's only Friday and Sunday's coming. Brothers and sisters, oh, to live in light of this truth, that oh, we live in a broken Good Friday world. In Christ, we can be Easter people. What good news is there? For those that live in a world where we look around and we see nothing but evil and darkness and brokenness, the only good news you and I have to cling to 
is that there is a hope beyond all hope and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have him this morning, let him be your anchor. And if you don't have him this morning, would you run and fall to his feet? You see, as we get to the end of Genesis this morning, why should we be surprised? Uh, The stories of Genesis that seem like one long Good Friday story end in chapter 50 like Easter. And why should we be surprised that our lives, full of the ups and downs, full of all the tragedies and misses, why should we ever be surprised that our story should end that way as well? Brothers and sisters, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming.